The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Okay, I'm going to read our scripture for today, and it's out of um, the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given, as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, church. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors, teaching pastors here. It's good to be with you. I'm just going to move this and I hope it doesn't fall apart. Ikea tables. (laughs) You never know. All right. So, um, I need help this morning because we have, a, as you just heard, a rich passage. There's a lot that we could say and talk about. um, And I don't want this to feel exactly like a fire hose to the mouth, to to your mouth. So, pray that that wouldn't happen with me, would you? Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we need you. I need you. I submit that I... I need your help to communicate clearly and thoroughly your word this morning. Would you help us to hear, to receive what you have for us, that we might become the kind of people more and more who are recognizing our gifts and encouraging one another as we exercise those gifts and build up the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... Briefly, a recap from last week. Last week, we covered uh, the first section of chapter 4, where Paul has spent the first three chapters of his letter to the church in Ephesus, kind of giving a rich theological discourse. Here's what Jesus has done for you. Here's the gospel power that you are called now, as a believer, to live into. And you're called to walk into good works that God has prepared in advance for you to walk in. And as he transitions into chapter 4, 
he's now going to get really practical. How then, based on what we've learned, ought we to live? And the first thing that we learned on two ideas here on unity, the first is this from last week. The most important calling or good work that every member of Central Bible has is to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We learn that the unity we're called to maintain is not something that we do passively. It's not something that we create either. God does not say to his church, hey, you guys need to create some sort of unity. No, 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 we've been given it. Each one of us who calls Jesus Lord, who we, whom we apprentice, each one of us has his spirit inside of us. And that is our bond. That is what unites us. And we're called to maintain that unity. So we don't create it, but we do maintain it, which means we have to fight for it. This is a word in the Greek that's not this passive. No, no, no. It's, it has to do with guarding the unity that we have. So we fight to maintain this unity. I am bonded then and connected to you and you to me and each one of us to one another by that unity because you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are actually family. And we're not family just by sheer name or by some recreational activity that we both enjoy or by some career path that we share in common or by some social club that we, that we go to. We are bonded together by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. His life, his work, his death, his resurrection, and his spirit is what makes us more than just mere acquaintances or friends when we gather together. So then, let's now look at our passage. The first section in Ephesians that we covered last week covers unity. And then in verses 7 through 10, Paul moves to talk about diversity within that unity. And then he ends the section back on unity again. And so the big idea that Paul wants us to live into this week for us today is this. Our unity is made complete when there is diversity within the body. And not just diversity for diversity's sake, but diversity for the sake of building up the church. So the next logical question then is, how is the church built up? We can look at a couple of passages to see the answer. Verse 7 says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So Christ himself, verse 11, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. What for? To equip his people for what? The works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So how is the church built? By every member, every member, not, not the guys on stage, not just us, every single one of us keeping the unity of the Spirit by walking in the good works through exercising our spiritual gifts for the work of ministry. That is why and how we build the church. So, the first question who gives these spiritual gifts? Answer? Yeah, it's not a trick question. Jesus. It's always a good answer to give in church. Jesus. Jesus generously gives gifts to build his church. And we see this throughout this entire section that Abby read. Verse 7, 
Grace has been given by him. It is as Christ apportioned it, or by the measure with which he gives it. He gave gifts to his people. So Christ himself gave, and then he lists the gifts. So as Paul moves into the diversity of gifts, it's important to recognize that Christ sovereignly distributes his gifts to all the members of his body. There is no special group who receives these gifts. Each one of us is to be understood comprehensively since it includes Paul and all his readers. Therefore, no one misses out. No one misses out on Christ's gifts for his church. Do you believe that? Have you ever thought, stopped for a moment to say to yourself, God in Christ has given me, has given me a spiritual gift or gifts. Let's keep going. So, verse 7 of chapter 4. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, Jesus is the one who gives us these gifts, right? And this word grace is this idea of, of giving an unmerited gift to, to, to someone else. And in our 21st century Western American mind, the idea of gift, or, or what we think of when we hear free gift, is not what they would have thought of or what Paul was thinking of in the ancient Near East when he wrote this. We think of free gift as something that's unmerited and that has zero strings attached. It's unmerited and it has no strings attached, right? Other than simple gratitude, maybe a thank you, I have no obligation. I ought not feel any obligation to do anything other than say thanks. But that just was not a concept. In the ancient Near East, they wouldn't have understood enjoyment of a free gift as something that culminated on themselves. They understood, in other words, the grace that I've been given doesn't stop with me. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be used to bless others. If someone were to offer another person in the ancient Near East extra food or wheat as a gift, to give this kind of gift, it wasn't that, that the receiver was supposed to return the gift back to the giver one for one, but it would have been totally reasonable for them to invite a neighbor over to give dinner to this person now that they have this extra food. Grace was meant to be extended beyond themselves. That's how they understood the gift. So that is why Paul will continue in our, in our section today to describe how these free gifts of grace that Christ has given are opportunities for you and I to extend grace to others. These are opportunities for you and I to extend grace to others as we use our gifts. Now, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, this is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended in the lower, to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Okay, so 
Paul quotes Psalm 68 here. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. If you're interested in it, you can totally go and look into it. But essentially, Paul, classic Paul, he kind of misquotes. Maybe he doesn't misquote. He's doing it on purpose, we think. So, this is Psalm 68. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people. This psalm is referring to Moses ascending Mount Sinai. You took many captives, right? The Israelites out of the land of Egypt. And you received gifts from these captives, from these people. Now, Ephesians here, what does Paul quote it saying as? When he ascended on high, so now we're talking about Jesus. He took many captives and gave gifts to people. Moses is receiving gifts. Jesus is giving gifts. So the discrepancy between the two quotations is important or significant, but essentially it's not really resolved, according to most people who are smarter than me that have studied this. Frankly, Paul changing the wording of Psalm 68 to read, gave gifts to his people, instead of you, Moses, received gifts from people, is not essential for understanding what Paul is after here. And this is his point. Throughout the Old Testament, God is, seeking to ta- God is seen taking in the captives, or the followers of Yahweh, and giving those captives back to the nation of Israel and other nations as a gift to them for building up the whole. Similarly, God in Christ has taken us in as his followers and gives us gifts so that we might be gifts to others. That's the main gist. Kind of Bible nerdy a little bit, right? That's okay, though. Let's look at verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So I want to say at the outset of this section that while I'd love to go into the specifics on what each of these gifts are, what they look like, that's just not my goal this morning. And I don't want you to be disappointed, so I'm kind of getting the expectations out now. My hope is that I give you a framework, some kind of working framework, an understanding that, uh, of what the spiritual gifts are, why they exist, how do we recognize them. I think that's going to be more helpful initially. And then as we go on, I think that we'll spend more time looking into this as a body, but we just don't have the time to get into the nitty-gritty of what each of these gifts looks like, let alone the, the several other gifts that are listed throughout the New Testament. So, first, these are gifts of proclamation, or word gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are proclamation, or word gifts. They're gifts that have to do with speaking primarily. And each of the gifts in verse 11 involve the proclamation of God's word spoken over some portion of the body of Christ. Whether in a Bible study, on a Sunday morning, uh, one-on-one. That's where these gifts are utilized. So what do these word gifts accomplish? The word gifts equip the church for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up. Our next verse, right? 
This tells us then, as I mentioned earlier, it is not the professional pastors on stage who are primarily responsible for the work of the ministry. These gifts, apostles, prophets, right, evangelists, pastors, teachers, these are important gifts. They're kind of like foundational gifts for the church, but they're not the gifts that, that complete all of the work of the ministry. Uh, these gifts are used to equip the rest of the body so that the work of the ministry can be done. Now, question. Who does the work of the ministry? Oh, I'm going the wrong way. You. Office or gifting? Is Paul talking about a church office in this passage when he talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors? Or is he talking about gifted people? People with these kinds of gifts. I think Paul is listing gifts of certain members of the body, not offices of the church held by those members. That's the popular opinion on this passage. Apostles refers to the gift of apostle, not to the office of apostle. Paul's emphasis is on the function or the activity of the gifted persons, not on the persons themselves or the offices themselves. And we all know that. We all know that simply putting people into labeled offices is pointless unless they actually are using the gift that they're supposed to be exercising in that office, right? So the distinction between gifts and office comes down to three things in the New Testament. Character, calling, and congregational approval. You need to have the approval of your peers, of those whom you will be leading. You need to be a person of character, and you need to have the calling. You need to feel called. What that means then is that there are people in our body and throughout the, the church of Christ that have these gifts that are not paid full-time vocational pastors. Did you hear me? There are people who have these gifts who are not paid vocational. Why? It may be character. Maybe it's calling. There are many gifted men and women in business who have careers that are exercising, using these kinds of gifts, whether or not they know it, um, or maybe are fully aware of it. But there are many people that are doing that. They just may not feel called to work full-time at a church. So then, now verse 12. These gifts exist to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So then, gifted, mature apprentices of Jesus are given to the church for the purpose of preparing other believers toward the goal of service or ministry. So I believe that a huge element that's missing for much of our discipleship is this reality. That as we disciple one another, we're not simply holding each other accountable for the sake of sin management. Rather, we're holding each other accountable to how we're participating in the work of the ministry. How many times have you been asked in an accountability group or a one-on-one with a close Christian brother or sister 
Like how many times have, they, have you ever been asked, hey, how are you keeping the unity at your church by exercising your spiritual gifts? How about never? I've never been asked that. I would suspect most of us haven't. That's crazy. This is literally the point of the church. Like, what, it's like, what am I supposed to do outside of a 10 Sunday morning? Do the work of the ministry. Like, we're all called to do that. And yet we never talk about it. We never talk about it. Let's become the kind of people, the kind of church where it is normal to talk about our spiritual gifts. Or to at least begin the journey of figuring out what that looks like for me. And to ask one another, yes, are you living a holy life? For sure. But it's not all about sin management. Jesus has promised us something much more than just, hey, don't do certain stuff. And make sure you tell each other not to do certain stuff. Right? Like, how about what am I doing for the kingdom of God? How am I keeping the unity within my church? Do I see my peers, my, my, my acquaint, these people I sit with, my, my home community, my tribe, do I see these people as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, as my family? I love the summary here that, uh, that one commentator gives kind of of this, this section. He says that as each believer functions with the gift given to each, Christ's body, the church, will be built up. The gifts are never for self-edification, but for the edification of the whole body of believers. The concept that the ministry belongs to clergy is foreign to this context because every saint is given a gift. Verse 7. And every saint is involved in the ministry. The gifted people listed are not to be considered as officers of the church, but rather gifted individuals who are foundational. Apostles and evangelists need to proclaim the message and establish churches. Prophets and pastor teachers need to inform and instruct believers. But the work of the ministry does not stop there. It continues as these gifted individuals prepare all the saints for the work of the ministry with the ultimate goal of building up the body of Christ. I think it's obvious, but I just want to say this. Gifts like getting to teach or preach, they're no more special. I am not special because I, have, I might have this gift. Hopefully I do. <laughs> Doing it. We'll talk about how you know if you have that gift in a minute. But <laughs> it, Seriously, these gifts, these are speaking gifts, right? They are foundational. They're no more valuable. That means that other gifts in the scriptures, gifts that have to do with acts of service and deed, are just as valuable, crucial, and important. Okay? So do not feel like the end goal is to be a really great person with words who can get on stage and teach other people. Maybe you have the gift of teaching, but that's not the end goal. The end goal is to build up the unity that we have in Christ and to find what gifts Jesus has particularly given to you that you might be able to build up the rest of the body. Verse 13. So we, we, we are prepared 
We prepare God's, or the gifts prepare God's people for the works of service until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So for Paul, the call to become mature, notice it's not connected to positional authority. It's not connected to your age. It's not connected to your stage of life or your accomplishments. The sign of a mature body of believers is their rugged commitment to maintaining the unity that we have in Christ by doing the work of ministry and exercising their gifts. That's the sign of a mature body of believers, ruggedly committed to that reality. That means then that reading the Bible, hear me, Reading the Bible, praying, any other spiritual discipline, fasting, anything that you can think of, those things are nothing more than hollow exercises in futility if it does not lead you to doing the work of ministering to others so that the body of Christ might attain to the whole measure of the fullness that we've been called to. Those things are not the end in themselves. More Bible knowledge, more time alone in the closet praying may be good, may be helpful, certainly couldn't hurt, except if it stops us from actually being in community with one another, building one another up by exercising our gifts. That's where it becomes hollow. If your love for God stops with you and it doesn't extend to others, you've missed it, right? That's why Jesus boils everything down. Two commands, love God, love others. So this is the implication then. It's not possible to be a mature apprentice of Jesus apart from meaningful engagement with the body of Christ. And you know what I'm going to say next, right? I said it last week. You can't have meaningful engagement with the body of Christ for two hours on a Sunday morning where maybe 20 minutes of that time is spent actually connecting with other people. You can't do it. It's just not possible. We are called to meaningful connection. Again, I just want to quickly plug, a home, home communities are one of the ways that we see uh, the Central Bible Church succeeding in that area. I want to invite you, come talk to me if you're interested in joining a home community or a triad. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. So Paul gives a subtle warning to those, really he's warning these people, these kinds of people that are gifted with these proclamation gifts, these word-speaking gifts. This is essentially an exhortation to neither be swayed by the tickling of, of the ears of, of others' words, nor to be the one that uses your gift of teaching and persuasion to tickle the ears of others. So Christ gave people, gifted people to the church, not only to function until the body attains to the fullness of him, right? That's the positive form of what he gave us for, gave these gifts for, but also for the purpose of protecting one another from deception, So the deception referenced here is cunning and craftiness. It's something that would easily sway the the spiritually immature, 
So the use of infants here implies children who are gullible. They lack understanding or perception. Paul proposes that these word gifts are necessary so that believers are not like children in their perception. These spiritually immature children lack stability. That's why they're tossed to and fro. They're not grounded and firm in their apprenticeship to Jesus. They're carried about by every wind of teaching. And this kind of teaching is designed to counteract the pastor-teacher's teaching. Mentioned in verse 11. So it's important to recognize that Paul says the spiritually immature are blown about by every wind of teaching. Not just by teaching that's heretical. Every wind of teaching. So what we think Paul's getting at here is that often we like to be biased about what kind of false teaching we like. I know it sounds weird, but we do that in the church, right? We're happy to fight against obvious heresy. We've got to maintain what's true. Right doctrine's important, for sure. Except that we don't think about the doctrine of the culture we find ourselves living in. So when, when you hear me or Oshawa or anyone else teach on stage in a Bible study, and we spend time unpacking and detailing the, the teaching of our culture, like, it's meaningful, that's valuable for us. Just in the same way that if I got up here and talked about some heresy, you would feel like, yes, that's good. We need to fight against that. And we need to fight against the cultural milieu we find ourselves in. We're like fish in water who don't know we're wet. We're so stinking used to what we live in, what we find ourselves in. I think that the last 50 years of evangelicalism, we've been obsessed with right doctrine, with finding the right doctrine and finding the heresy or the wrong beliefs. And so in the fight of fighting for scriptural heresy, or not fighting for it, but fighting against it, the American church has almost lost the fight against the vision of the good life that our culture teaches us, that we're indoctrinated in. We often live no different than our neighbors. We're racked with the same kind of guilt. We feel the same levels of anxiety. We're chronically lonely. We're addicted to devices, etc., etc. Therefore, it makes sense that we spend time unpacking how totally saturated we are by our culture so that we can fight against it. Verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love is better understood as truthing in love. That's what Paul is saying here. Truthing in love. To be truth to others, we need to speak it and what? Live it. The positive goal of building up the body is to become people who are known for truthing in love Because the phrase, speaking the truth in love, talks of being real or transparent, both in conduct and in speech. So the deceit of others was not only in their words, but also in their conduct. In other words, the believer's conduct should be transparent, should reveal the real state of things, should talk about reality as it actually is. The word love here was defined as that which seeks the highest good of the other. As we practice and exercise our spiritual gifts, we are to do so in love. 
In other words, we are to do it so that we would seek the, the most possible good for our neighbor, for our friend, for our brother and sister in Christ. Finally, we're almost, clo- almost to the closing. 16, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work, that implies a responsibility for each one of us to be utilizing our gifts. You think about the human body. If, If the liver cells, the cells of the liver stop functioning correctly, does the whole body suffer? Dire consequences. What if, though, the liver cells are overworking, overproducing? Does the whole body still suffer? What does that mean? If it's just the leadership who are exercising their gifts, we're all suffering. If some of you are willingly choosing to not step out in faith and not begin exploring what those gifts are for you, does, do we all experience the pain from that reality? Yes, we all suffer. We need one another. And so, I just want to ask, what supporting ligament are you? That Paul talks about. What supporting ligament are you? As Oshua said in the preaching meeting this week, if nothing drops when you stop, you're not serving in this body. If nothing drops when you stop, you're not serving. Would we miss you if you weren't here? Would we feel it? Not just as a, as a, as a number, that we're one number less on a Sunday morning. But would we feel that relationally? So I want to end our time briefly, trying to go as fast as I can, by answering a few more key questions about spiritual gifts that the passage doesn't directly address, but I think that we all often have. The first is this. How do I discover my spiritual gift or gifts? First off, I want to encourage you to lean into your home community or your triad. Lean into those who you are intimate, deep, meaningful relationship with to affirm you, to affirm the gifts that they see in you. Secondly, remember that you are not the most reliable barometer, okay? You are not the best judge of yourself in this way. So we need to lean into one another. And finally, ask other mature believers who you want to be like someday like that have been following Jesus for a while, who you can tell have a firm understanding of their own gifts because they've walked with Jesus for a long time, ask them to help you recognize what your gifts are. Question. Whoops, did I skip something? I did. Is there a difference between ability and gift? Is there a difference between ability and gift? I think so. Listen to J.I. Packer. Ability to speak or act in a particular way, or performing ability, as we may call it, is only a spiritual gift if and as God uses it to edify. We need to draw a clear distinction between man's capacity to perform and God's prerogative to bless. For it is God's use of our abilities rather than the abilities themselves that constitutes spiritual gifts. 
If no regular identifiable spiritual benefit for others or ourselves results from what we do when we practice our gifts, we should not think of our capacity to do it as a spiritual gift. For you cannot define a spiritual gift as performance alone. The definition must include the relational factor of God-given edification in Christ through the performance. While where there is lacking, a supposed gift will be a carnal rather than a spiritual manifestation, even though its form may correspond to a genuine manifestation of the Spirit in someone else. What constitutes and identifies a spiritual gift is not the form of the action, but the blessing of God. So is there a difference between gift and ability? Yes, absolutely. How will we know if we're exercising our spiritual gifts? Spiritual gifts are known by their spiritual fruits. Is there fruit? Be careful who you seek affirmation from. Your friends may not, maybe, maybe, they may be, or they may not be the best help in that way. Listen, I get up here every week, or not every week, a couple times a month, and I get to teach. I really appreciate the feedback that I get. It's very rare that someone, unless I, I suspect that as a young preacher, unless I preach something outright heretical, I'm probably not going to hear something super negative from those within the body. So often, after the sermon, I'll, I'll get feedback, and I genuinely appreciate it. I'm thankful for it. It's typically kind and gracious. Maybe gracious is the better word. People are gracious. They're patient with me. But while I appreciate that feedback, I'm going to lean into Oshawa, Danny, and McKenzie more. Why? They're also gifted in teaching. They have experience with the scriptures, speaking to people. They've studied the scriptures, Bible college. Like, I'm going to lean into their insights a little bit more when it comes to feedback on whether or not there was fruit. And so, hopefully that can kind of help guide you as you lean into your gifts. So finally, remember that as we wrap up, gifts are practiced in deep, meaningful community. You cannot attend a church event while not participating in meaningful community and think that you're practicing some spiritual gift. It's just not possible. Vulnerability is key for, re- for receiving the gifts of others, right? For them to feel comfortable exercising their gift towards you. And it's key for you being able to exercise your gift to them. Every single spiritual gift requires someone else to practice that gift. That makes spiritual gifts different than hobbies, things that we like to do. They are inherently relational. They're not something that end on yourself. They're not for you to feel good, right? They're for the sake of others. And so then, to begin to learn to practice them, we ought to be intentionally seeking the presence of the Holy Spirit throughout the day that we might know when. Who needs to be blessed? How I can bless them? How can I keep the unity with my brother and sister in Jesus? Okay. Pray with me. Lord, we just love you, God. We 
thankful for your word. It's rich, it's deep, it's complex. God, I, I ask that in this, this talk there was a lot of information. I pray that it would be helpful. Holy Spirit, weed out the parts that are not necessary, fruitful. I ask for there to be good spiritual fruit from this time, this, this time of learning and teaching. This was a little bit more of a lecture in some ways, and I pray that it would be helpful for our body, that we would grow in recognizing the gifts in one another, that you, Jesus, would help us to be the kinds of people who are happy and quick to affirm the character of Christ we see in our brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, enable us to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus, to be vulnerable, to be honest, and to to practice our gifts with love. Not for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of others. That the church might be built up and brought to the full measure of your son, Jesus. We love you. Thank you. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.